Well, my name is Jacob Smith, and I'm the youth director here at Southwood. Uh, I had a very amazing experience uh, this past Thursday morning. I don't know if you've taken a vow of solitude or if you just got back from the Himalayas or something like that, but if you did not do those things, if you've been in town for the past month, uh, you will have heard about a certain event uh, known as the Plaza Implosion. Uh, Let's just... You know, Memorial Day weekend, we can be interactive. Let's just show of hands, who has either seen it in person or watched video online or on the news? Excellent. Excellent. I'm so proud of us. Yes. Right? And if you have, if, if you're one of that one person that didn't raise your hand, it is okay. You can leave right now and go home and watch that video because... That is the most important thing God's going to show you today, is that plaza implosion. Uh, it was amazing, right? It was, it was spectacular. My wife and I, we woke up 5.30 on Thursday morning uh, because we just needed to be there. We needed to be there in person. So we woke up, got in the car, didn't even put on makeup. It was ama- My wife didn't even put on makeup. <laughs> It was crazy, right? Uh, got in the car, shot out there, met some friends, and we stood, we stood in this field, and as we were walking there, as we were driving even, I felt like I was driving into a post-apocalyptic college station because there's just cars abandoned on the sides of the road. There's people just wandering everywhere. They all kind of look a little haggard, right? Because it's 5.30 in the morning. They're wearing, they have equipment and like children, livestock on their backs. And they're just like wandering around these streets where there's normally cars, but it's empty. And it was just this surreal moment as we were walking through and seeing all these people. We eventually make our way to a field. We were right next to the... Um, the designated viewing area. And so we were staying with all these people who were just talking and, and looking at this plaza. It was right across from us, above some trees. And in that moment, uh, there were literally thousands of people surrounding us. Thousands. I just, I looked around. I could not help myself but just take in the fact that probably about half of our city's population was standing in this field or in the Best Buy parking lot or over by Fuego and all that stuff. Just people everywhere, all staring at this tower. And my favorite, though, my favorite person in the audience at that time was a little three-year-old boy who was kind of running around the field next to me. He was still wearing his super awesome superhero pajamas, like the matching full suit, and he was stomping around in the grass. And every once in a while, he would just stop. And he'd look up at the tower and he'd point And then he would say, bring it down. Like just over and over. Like just stomp, stomp, stomp. Bring it down. Like every time, the emphasis on down. Like I could just tell that there was this rage in his eyes that he needed that building to fall. And apparently he's incredibly powerful because they brought it down. Like they did exactly as he asked, right? So I'm now terrified of that kid. But we were all amazed. We were all, you know, so glad. And they pushed the button. It fell down. And then everyone went to breakfast, right? Because it's like 6.35 in the morning, right? So we were all just so amazed. Everyone just left. And it was funny, though, because the entire time I was there, I, I had this conversation running through my mind. Uh, the day before, I was meeting uh, with my Greek professor who lives in Houston. And he and I uh, were in town and we happened to see the eagle. And we happened to see the front page, which was this big picture of the plaza. And it was like, you know, implosion tomorrow and had all these details for how to get there and what to do. Uh, and my professor kind of looked at it and he looked at me 
And he said, does, does College Station just love destruction? Like, what's going on? Like, I could tell, like, he was a little worried about us, thinking maybe we were like this Hunger Games type society where we just worship violence and destruction, right? But, but when he asked me that, I was like, oh, you know, tried to play it off. Like, oh, no, it's, you know, it's just, it's really exciting. But in the back of my mind, I was like, that, you know, this is, this is kind of strange, right? This is, this is kind of weird that all of these people, literally thousands and thousands of people, children, parents, college students, grandparents, all these people took the time early, early on Thursday morning to show up at this field and stare at this building until it was no longer there. Like, the, we all did that. We were all willing to put aside our schedules, put aside the responsibilities that we had, set aside this time, and unite. We united around this building in this one experience of watching a building fall. We were all joined together as one, waiting for it, right? Our journalists, our newspaper journalists, our TV reporters, they pushed aside these stories of world politics and and financial disasters and, and all these different things that they could talk about. And instead, we're focused primarily on this one building that was gonna fall down because they knew that's what we cared about. That's what we were united for. That's what we wanted to know. This past year, we've been going through the book of Romans, and we've been looking at all these different things that Paul is telling us about the Christian faith and and how it works. And ever since we hit chapter 12, Paul has been very specific. He's been very applicable in his words. He's been telling us, giving us advice on how to live a Christian life. And what's really interesting is even though he's given us a lot of different advice on a lot of different subjects, he ties most of them into one idea, this one overarching idea of unity. That's why uh, in verse, or in chapter 12, this morning we're going to be in 15, but in chapter 12, don't turn there, he tells us, for just as we have many members in one body and all the members do not have the same function, so we who are many are one body in Christ and individually members of another. He's talking about spiritual gifts in this passage, but he brings it back to this idea of unity. In verses 9 and 10, when he talks about love, He says, let love be without hypocrisy, abhor what is evil, cling to what is good, be devoted to one another in brotherly love, give preference to one another in honor. Again, he's taking this idea of love, but he's applying it to unity. 14.19 says, so then we pursue the things which make for peace and the building up of one another. The passage that we were in just, just a while back, talking about sacrificing our freedoms, giving up our own freedoms for the sake of others, he again just brings it back. It's so that we could build up one another. This idea of peace, this idea of unity, this idea that we should all be unified. And that's why in chapter 15, verse 7, our starting point for this morning, he gives us a very simple command. He says, therefore, accept one another just as Christ also accepted us to the glory of God. Therefore, accept one another. This is the exact same word that he's using. If you look at the original Greek, this is the exact same word that he uses in chapter 14. In 14.1, he says, Now accept the one who is weak in faith, but not for the purpose of passing judgment on his opinions. It's this idea of acceptance, to receive. It's this idea of drawing someone in to yourself, drawing them towards yourself. This full acceptance, this almost embrace of another person, of another idea, that, that sort of thing. Right? This isn't just a toleration. Right? This isn't just saying, okay. Right? I, I like to think of it as sort of an idea of, uh, you know, if you see someone, for example, I went to a wedding yesterday, and that's where all the ghosts of Jacob's past pop up, right? And so 
uh, I saw this guy and, and I, in my mind, I, you know, I had two options. I could either be excited, be like, wow, you came, right? Like, this is so exciting. Like, I'm so glad to see, you know, hug him, high five, whatever. Or on the flip side, I could say, oh, you came, fist bump, right? Like minimum amount of physical contact needed, right? Like I, I could do that because in reality, when we walk through life, as we interact with people, we can really accept them or we can just kind of tolerate them. We can just kind of say, okay, like I don't really care for you, but I, I won't say anything about it. I, I won't make a big deal, right? I will, we'll just be nice. We'll, we'll fist bump, right? That's, that's not what Paul is talking about. Paul's referring to this idea of full acceptance, full embrace, full receiving of someone else. It's this idea of proslambano. That's the word that he uses. It's this idea of fully accepting someone. And man, this is hard, right? This is something that we often don't do. When I was in kindergarten, I went to a uh, private school and we all wore uniforms and our options for uniform shirt color was red or radioactive waste yellow. Okay, I think that's the official Crayola name. And uh, as we uh, would go to school, we, we all quickly learned, okay, red looks way cool. Yellow looks terrible. And so a lot of times we would wear red shirts. And therefore, one day in my kindergarten class, uh, one of my friends uh, set up this idea that he had a club. And you could only join his club if you wore a red shirt. If you're wearing a red BCS shirt, that's when you could be in his club. So he kind of stood back and waited for people to join. And sure enough, people started flocking, right? Because in kindergarten, you don't know what you're doing. Um, so you're like, I need to be in this club because it exists. So all these people are you know, trying to join the club. And, and I was always kind of a loner. I was always kind of that kid that would stay in the corners and color by myself, right? Or play with blocks, I suppose. And, and so I saw this, though, and I was like, this is my chance. Like, this, is, this is my opportunity to become one of the group to be accepted as, as one. And so I went to the group, and I was like, hey, you know, I'm wearing a red shirt today. Like, can I be in your club? And they're like, yeah, 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 come on in. And I was accepted. I was like, oh, this is great. Right? Like, this, everything is great now. Like, my life has peaked. This is the maximum enjoyment that I will ever receive in this world. I'm in the club as a five-year-old, right? So... I was so excited, and in that moment, that my sheer just excitement, joy, the guy who started the club suddenly pointed at me. He said, oh, traitor, right? Probably not that, because we were in kindergarten, but that's why I like to think in my mind. Traitor, right? Et tu, Jacob, right? Like, he, he pointed me out, and he says, you can't be in this club. And I was like, why? I'm, I'm wearing a red shirt, right? And then at that moment, I looked down, and I realized what had happened was my mom, and washing all of my clothes, uh, she had washed my red polos, right, these red shirts that we wore to school. And unfortunately, in my uniform drawer, she had also put a red polo that instead of our little mascot, our little eagle, there was a little Mickey Mouse. Because I owned a red shirt that had Mickey on it as well. <sighs> And so in that moment, I looked down, and I thought, ah, Mickey, right? <laughs> Disney has ruined me yet again. And I looked up, and there was no excuse. I couldn't do anything, right? And so I was like, okay, I'm out of the club, and I had to leave. And they all laughed and pointed and jeered at me. And I mean, it's great because I'm not bitter, right? I'm not, I've gotten over it. I'm totally, <laughs> totally cool with it, Doyle Durrett. But, you know, it's fine. Like, I... I'm, I'm over it. It's fine. I've moved on. Uh, but the fact is, is that, man, that is a simplified version of what we do every day. 
We are constantly drawing these lines. Maybe it's not, you have to wear a red polo just like me. But a lot of times it's, you need to believe in this type of worship on Sunday mornings. Or I think that we should teach this lesson in Bible study. Or I believe that we should have these types of examples or these types of sermons. Or we should all have this kind of service project. And we're drawing these lines in front of us and making these divisions and drawing these boundaries. And suddenly as a Christian group that should be united, we are finding ourselves divided. We are all in our own pockets in our own denominations, going to our own little Bible studies, thinking about our ways of doing things. And we are not always united. That's why Paul is making this point. It's not that he's like, well, you've got it pretty much under control, but just in case, like here, here you should try to accept each other. No, he's saying this is an issue. This will always be an issue. This is a huge problem in the Christian church and the community that we have of division, of not accepting one another, of not fully drawing each other in to community. We have this problem. And it's silly, it's crazy almost for us to do this because Christ accepted us, right? He says we should accept each other just as Christ also accepted us. He points us to the fact that, look, Christ came before you and he already accepted everyone, So who are we to decide, no, you're not worthy, you're not worthy, you're not worthy? Who are we to do that? When Christ came to this world, died for our sins so that all could come to him, who are we to pick out the people that don't really deserve it? The idea is if I was the starting quarterback for Texas A&M University, right? Because that's possible. And... I've been recruited, right? The head coach came to my house and had my family over for dinner and, uh, you know, gives me fruit baskets. And eventually I say, okay, I'll sign on. So I sign on to be on the Texas A&M football team. The coaches love me. Uh, you know, the, the starting players, we all have these meetings, we go on retreats. We're just, we're bonding together as a, as a group. And then I'm in the locker room before the first game and I'm just getting pumped up. And the fifth string wide receiver comes in, comes up to me and says, hey, I... I just don't think you should be an Aggie football player. So could you leave? Like, is that cool, right? Like a fifth string wide receiver comes up to me and asks me to leave. I would look at him and say, you are insane because you have no power, right? Like what, what do you think, what authority do you think you have to make that decision? The coach has approved me. The team has approved me. These other people that are actually in charge have approved me. Why do you think you can step in and disapprove. And that's what we do. Christ has come into this world. He died. He lived and died for our sins. Not to accept our sins, not to say, well, sin's okay. But instead he died so that our sins could be forgiven, so that he could accept us and change us to be more like him. He already did that. So who are we to step into that situation and say, "Mm, but not him. He's a little bit too much out there. That's crazy, but we do it. We do it all the time. And so why does God care though? So maybe, you know, that's just another one of those sins. Maybe it's just one of those struggles that we'll have. Why does Paul take take a moment and really hit this hard? Why does God care so much about the fact that we are unified? Why isn't he just okay with us all being, having a relationship with him on individual levels? Why does he care so much about our unity? Verse 5, chapter 15, says this. 
Now may the God who gives perseverance and encouragement grant you to be of the same mind with one another, according to Jesus Christ, so that with one accord you may be with one voice, you may with one voice glorify the God and Father of our Lord Jesus Christ. Paul makes it very simple. He says, look, we strive for unity. God wants us to be unified. He wants us to be of the same mind so that we may glorify God, so that we may bring glory to him. This idea of glory is this all-encompassing term. It's this idea that God is perfect in every way. It encompasses his character, his actions, his thoughts, his words. When we look, as, when we look at God as a whole, That is his glory. That is what is amazing to us. And when we are unified, we draw that out. We show that to the world. When we unite, we are displaying God's glory to the people around us. In the Old Testament, uh, Moses was leading the Israelites out of of Egypt. And as they were going, uh, at one point, God said to Moses, okay, I'm going to have to give you some guidelines. We have to give you some rules. And so they stopped. They kind of camped at Mount Sinai. And Moses went up to receive instruction from God. And God told Moses, look, okay, when we're up here, I'm going to have to talk to you. He says, but you can't handle, you can't handle my full glory. So what I'm going to do, Moses, I'm going to kind of cover your eyes until I pass by. And then you'll kind of just catch the briefest glimpse of my backside. That's what he says. And when you catch that glimpse, then I will speak to you. Then I will reveal to you my law. And so Moses hears these words and he gets, he writes things down and he goes back down the mountain to talk to the Israelites. And it says that when he went down, his face was literally shining. It shone with the glory of God to the point where the people who tried to talk to him were really distracted. They were trying to have meetings. He was trying to tell them, okay, God wants us to do this and do this and do this. And the whole time they're just like, Moses, I, I'm sorry, you just, your face is, it's like a light, well, not a light bulb, because those don't exist. It's like a fire, Moses. Your, your face is a fire right now. It's shining. And so he had to cover it with a veil. He literally had to cover his face to block out the distraction of those people. And he went up and down, up and down, up and down, met with God, met with people, met with God, met with people. And it says that every time he would try to talk to them, he'd be like, uh, uh, too much, uh, glare, right? And so he had to cover himself with a veil. I like to think of this as Moses' Rudolph period, where basically God said to Moses, Moses, with your face so bright, won't you guide my people through the desert, right? Like that's, that's what's going on in the Old Testament. When we see Moses talking to God, he is just taking in this glory, not even a full view of God, but just the backside, the briefest glimpse, and his face shone. It shined with the glory of God. When we as Christians unite, Paul is telling us we are glorifying him. We are shining. We are reflecting this glory as a unified whole. That's the reason we should be united, because that is the way that we shine or reflect God's glory. This all-encompassing amazingness of God, that's how we display it to the world around us. That's how glory is created through our, uni- through our unity, right? And it, it works that way due to a couple little pieces. If we look at verse 8, Paul says, For I say that Christ has become a servant to the circumcision— on behalf of the truth of God to confirm the promises given to the fathers and for the Gentiles to glorify God for his mercy. So in order to really understand how does our unity reflect the glory of God, how does that really work? How does that play out? 
Paul takes us back a step and says, okay, look, look at Christ's life, death, and resurrection. Look at what he did on this earth. What did it accomplish? And there's a lot of different little pieces, and Paul picks out two specifically. He picks out to confirm the promises given to the fathers and for the Gentiles to glorify God for his mercy. Two specific reasons for Christ's life, death, and resurrection. And the promises given to the fathers, okay, so the first, the first one we want to look at is this idea of these promises that have been given to the fathers— there's a lot of promises in the Bible, right? There's a lot of covenants. There's a lot of uh, pacts. There's a lot of treaties that you'll see. But when Paul's referring to these promises given to the fathers, he's referring to a very specific covenant, which is the Abrahamic covenant. You'll find it in Genesis 12, primarily. And when you look at it, you'll notice that there's three main pieces to the Abrahamic covenant. The first is land. It's this idea that God told Abraham, he said, look, one day you will have a land. I will give you a land where you can live, where you can prosper, where you will be safe from enemies. You will have this land, this place to live. We know part of that land as modern day Israel. Israel doesn't cover everything that God actually promises in the Bible. And especially at that time when Paul is writing this, if you looked at the, the Jews and the Israelite nation at that time in the world, they had no land. They had no land at all. They were a conquered people. They were a scattered people. They were all over just in all these different empires. And they had no unity. There, there was no land that they really could call their own. So when the people see this, they're like, okay, well, that's, that's not happening, right? That, that's, not, that's not really going on right now. There is no land. But, but the second promise was seed. God tells Moses, literally, you will have so many descendants. You will have so many sons, sons and sons and sons and grandsons and great-grandsons, and you will have all these descendants. And then in the Davidic covenant, he even specifies a little bit more. He says, in some of those descendants, one of those descendants will set up a kingdom and will rule over this amazing kingdom. That's what's going to happen in your future. But if you looked at the Israelites in this time, you would see, no, that, that's not happening. Again, like I just said, they were a scattered people, didn't really have a land. They certainly didn't have a king. They certainly had no kingdom. There, was no, there were a lot of them, but they were just all over. And so when they looked at the situation, the people are probably thinking, they're getting a little discouraged. As they're running through the Abrahamic covenant, they're like, dang, not happening yet, not happening yet. But the third piece was blessing. The third piece of the Abrahamic covenant is God told Moses literally, or sorry, not to Moses, to, to Abraham. He literally says, and in you, all the families of the earth will be blessed. He tells Abraham, look, in you, through you, I will work through your descendants, through your nation to bless everyone, all the families of the earth. I will work through your people to bless all peoples. This is a big statement, right? This is a big deal. Last Christmas, uh, I gave my wife a bread machine. Okay, that was one of the gifts that I, that I bestowed upon her, a bread machine, right? Because my wife enjoys uh, cooking and, and baking, and she uh, really loved to make uh, like pizza dough and, and loaves of bread. And so I thought, you know what? Let's speed this process up. Let's just get you a machine that does it all for you. It's the 21st century. Come on, baby, right? So I gave her the bread machine, and shortly after she received the bread machine, she wound up looking up a recipe uh, for cinnamon rolls, right? And you're probably thinking in your mind, yes, I've had a cinnamon roll before, and maybe you're, you're thinking about it in your mind, icing, dough, maybe it was at Cinnabon, in which case, 
I'm just glad you're still with us, right? But you're thinking about this, you know, the cinnamon roll, and I can just promise you right now that my cinnamon rolls that were created by my wife are so much better. Like, you're thinking, no, I'm, mine was pretty, you're wrong, okay, no. No, these cinnamon rolls are life-changing. Like, I, I, if, if it was possible, I would eat them constantly. I would, I would be preaching to you right now eating cinnamon rolls, if I could, if, if that wouldn't kill me by the age of, like, next week, right? Like, I would, I would be eating these things nonstop because they are so delicious, right? And what's great is that my wife is gracious to me and, and loves me enough that she will make them, you know, every once in a while, and she will make these cinnamon rolls, make a huge batch, and we'll just eat all of them in, like, a minute, <laughs> you know, just vacuums, right? Because we love these cinnamon rolls. And what's great, what's amazing is that now I've seen, I was like, wow, what a great gift, that I gave my wife, right? Because even though I gave her this bread machine, she has worked through the bread machine to bless our entire family, right? <laughs> the both of us are benefiting greatly, right? Which is why next Christmas she's getting a brand new TV, right? <laughs> like that's, that's how this is going to work. Because I'm like, this is the greatest gift strategy I could ever think of, right? Because she's able to use this one bread machine and she works through it to bless both of us. God tells Abraham, I'm going to work through your people and through you, I'm going to bless everyone. Everyone will receive blessing. And Paul points this out because he's saying, look, this is happening. This is now. Paul is pointing out Christ came from the line of Abraham, from the line of David. And through him, God has blessed the entire world. Paul repeatedly points out, if you are a Gentile, if you are a non-Jew, you are now free to be accepted as one with the family of God. You are now free to enter into relationship with God because of the sacrifice that Christ made. We, sitting in this church right now, are able to be Christians, are able to sit here, are able to be in relationship with God because of the sacrifice that Christ made. We glorify God. Our unity glorifies God because our unity is only possible through him. The very number one reason that our unity reflects and shines this glory of God is because it's only possible through him. Otherwise, we would have no common bond. There would be nothing binding us together. But that's not it. He says not only is it this idea of promise, not only does it fulfill this promise— Right? But also, we should be thanking him. Right? We should be glorifying him, not only in our unity, but also just in our thankfulness. That's why he says we are now as Gentiles to glorify God for his mercy. Because when we realize, wow, he has fulfilled this promise to bless us, man, that, that gives us a thankfulness. That's why he uses uh, four very specific quotes you notice in your Bible that it, it might suddenly change from just normal uh, writing to all caps, right? Like suddenly Paul got really angry and hit the caps lock key and was like, look at this, right? But a lot of times what that signifies is that he's quoting Old Testament passages. And he pulls out uh, three specific ones that are really emphasizing this idea that we should be glorifying God with our actions as Gentiles. And he's very, very specific. He's very strategic in what he picks because he, in those quotes, he hits all three major sections of the Old Testament. He hits the law, the prophets, and the Psalms. More specifically, he is quoting Moses, Moses, Isaiah, and David, King David, these heavy hitters, these main guys that all the Israelites would be like, yes, that was it. Like they are the paragons. They are the ultimates in our books. It's the same way that when a movie comes out and they put posters up or there's advertisements on TV, a lot of times they'll pull quotes 
or from like Roger Ebert or, or other critics, and they'll just have them flash up against the screen. That's where, you know, you should go see the Avengers because this guy says, thumbs up, right? Or this movie was great, bum bum, so-and-so, sun times, right? Like there's all these different quotes that just flash up when you're like, yes, I trust that, right? And then the same way, Paul says, look, look at these passages. He says, Therefore, I will give praise to you among the Gentiles, and I will sing to your name. Bum, bum, David. Bum, bum, Psalm 18, right? These are these quotes. He says, from Moses, rejoice, O Gentiles, with his people. Bum, bum, Moses. Moses, Deuteronomy 32. And he says, there shall come the root of Jesse, and he who arises to rule over the Gentiles, in him shall the Gentiles hope. Gaga, Isaiah 11, right? This is this dramatic moment where as you're reading the passage, you're like, yes. Yes, 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 yes. And you realize this isn't just Paul telling me what he thinks about the world. This is truth. This is backed up by the historical heavy hitters of the Old Testament. Suddenly we look at this and we realize, wow, there is really something to this. There is really something to this idea that we should be glorifying God, thanking him for what he's done. But it's not just thanking him for what he's done. It's not just glorifying him because of what's already happened. But also, we should be glorifying him and praising him because when we see what's happened, it gives us hope. We see, now may the God of hope fill you with all joy and peace in believing so that you will abound in hope by the power of the Holy Spirit. Paul closes out this little passage by reminding us, look, we should be filled with hope. We should be filled with this idea of hope, of looking to the future and realizing, wow, God has something amazing planned. Because we've seen the promises that he's made, and we've seen one of those promises already getting fulfilled. And it should fill us. We should be like, wow, that, that's amazing, because God's also promised that we would all be, live in eternity with him. He's promised that we will all get to go to heaven. Well, he's promised that we've, we get to live on a new earth. He's promised that one day there will be no pain or suffering. He's promised that one day Christ will rule over us. And when we look at those promises and we realize what's going to happen, man, that should unify us. When we were all on that field looking at the Plaza Hotel on Thursday morning at 6.30, uh, my friends and I were kind of joking and thinking about how funny it would be if they just, there was a mistake and they suddenly had to delay it until Friday, right? Because all of a sudden there would be thousands of people standing around looking at a building, admiring the architecture, I guess, right? Because we would just be stuck there and be like, well, I could, the Plaza is kind of cool, right? And people don't do that, right? There's no weekly meeting of, hey, let's all go look at the Hilton, Wow, right? Like that doesn't happen. They don't block off roads so everyone can just stand and, yeah, they really built those support beams well. Like we don't, we don't do that, right? Instead, we were united. We were looking at this plaza, not because of what had happened in the past, but we were looking at it, waiting in it, united around it because of the hope of what was going to happen. Because we were like, man, pretty soon that stinker's coming down, right? That's, that's what united us. It was that hope in this future event, how so much more should we as Christians look at God and look at what he's promised and be united and think, wow, God is going to do these things. Let's, let's unite. Let's look at this. Let's, let's hit these things together. That's how we glorify God, not just through thinking, thank you for what you've done. Thank you for blessing us through Christ, but also, God, thank you. Oh my gosh, we are so excited about what you're going to do in the future. That's how our unity glorifies him. That's how we show the world, look, this is the God that saved us. This is the God who's going to continue to save us, going to continue to work in our lives for the rest of eternity.
And so as we wrap our minds around this idea, as we look at this, I have two main challenges for you. Because as you're listening to this, uh, maybe you kind of thought, well, you know what, I, I've, you know, I'm, I'm pretty united. Like, I'm a, I'm a go-getter. I'm a, I'm a team player, right? And in that case, maybe you don't have to focus too much in unity, right? But for some of us, we, look at, we heard that and we're like, wow, yep, that was, that was me and Steve right there. Like, we had that relationship in our minds. We're like, that's, yeah, maybe I should work on that. Right? Maybe you think about your unity and your unity within the church. Maybe it's not necessarily what you do. Maybe it's not you and a person don't get along. Maybe it's just your words. Maybe when you speak about fellow Christians, maybe when you speak about the church, maybe you just tend to be a little more, more negative than you should. Maybe when you talk to someone, you say, yeah, I really I enjoyed Sunday, but I don't know, there's this guy and he was talking about the plaza, and I really liked the plaza, and I didn't appreciate the fact that he talked down on it, right? Like, maybe, maybe you use these, maybe you slip in these comments, you have these negative things that you talk about, or like, I really like, you know, I really love John, but bless his heart, he just has no patience. Oh my gosh, right? Like, maybe, maybe just slip in those negative comments. Maybe this week, that's what you need to work on. Maybe this week, you work on your, this idea of unity. You work on your words, or maybe you work on your actions. We had a, a, a number flash up earlier in the service, perfect illustration. Uh, 555. In case you didn't know, that's the emergency. There are babies rioting in the nursery uh, number. Like that's, that's the sign that something's on fire and no one's in control. Like that's 555 is someone please help us. That's what the nursery sends out, right? Because the thing is, is I don't know if you realize this, but we uh, rely extremely heavily on college students uh, to run a lot of our ministries, uh, especially children's and on Sunday mornings and Sunday school and in early childhood. And so this summer, maybe your act in trying to build your unity, please volunteer. Please just go after this, go find someone in the children's ministry or in the children's wing and tell them, hey, look, I can help out once a month, one Sunday a month, one out of four. I'd love to do that for you. I would love to give up one service or two services. I can do that. Please, please, please. If that's where you think you need to focus your attention on this idea of unity, go for it. Or maybe you're thinking, well, I'm pretty unified, but I don't know, this, this hope, these promises that you mentioned, I don't know if I really buy into those. I'm not really sure what all those are. Well, let me encourage you. Uh, this summer on a few Wednesday nights, we are having a study offered to the, the whole church uh, where we go over the end times. And we are going through the, what God is going to do in the future. We're walking through Revelation. We're walking through eschatology, the, the study of the end times. And so if you don't have a full grasp on this hope, on what you should be hoping in, please come to that. And hopefully that will give you more hope in what God's done. Okay, so the, as the men are coming forward and we're about to take communion, uh, which is a beautiful, great uh, thing that we're doing today, just kind of worked out uh, that we are uniting together in our taking of communion. Uh, I would ask that uh, we're going to kind of pray for a second here uh, to kind of wrap up, and then we are going to uh, take communion. And as we do that, we'll be a little bit more thoughtful, we'll be a little bit more quiet. And as we do those things, I would just ask that you would think and pray to God about what do I need to focus on? Am I focusing on unity this week, or am I, or am I focusing on hope? And within those things, God, what can I do? What opportunities can I take advantage of? So let's, let's go ahead and pray right now. Lord, thank you so much for this morning. God, thank you again uh, for the fact that you have this perfect plan for all of us, that you have united us together as one here at Grace Bible Church Southwood Campus. Lord, we pray that as we take this communion, that it would be meaningful. Lord, I pray that we would all really focus in, think about what you would have to tell us this morning. God, we thank you that we have people who are willing to serve and, and pass around trays, that we have people who are willing to serve and sing worship. God, we thank you that you have united us in that cause.
of having communion. So Lord, bless this time. Lord, prepare our hearts and continue to prepare us through this tradition. Praise on your son's name. Amen.